1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Peter Carey, whose latest novel is A Long Way From Home. This is the 14th novel. More recent novels include Amnesia, The Chemistry of Tears, also Parrot and Olivier in America, True History of the Kelly Gang, Oscar and Lucinda, There are two short story collections as well. Your latest novel, A Long Way From Home, takes you back to Australia, which is where you're from, though you've been living in New York for a long time, and deals with several elements. One is the redex rally, redex trial. Another is racism in Australia. And the third, which may be the place to start, is that the book takes place in the early 1950s, in a town called Bacchus Marsh, which is near Melbourne. And where you are from, not only that, but two of the characters in there run a dealership, and your parents ran a GM dealership. Mm. So are you the character, Ronnie? I
0: was at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art yesterday, and I like to see Robert Rauschenberg's work. There's a painting there which I think is called Untitled, and there's a sock stuck on the canvas. I think that sock is something I really identify with. It's something that Rauschenberg had on the floor and he put on a painting and it became about something else. So when I pick up the stuff in my life, it's not socks, but it can be car dealerships, back of smash and those sort of things. So I'm never writing biographically, but I am using what's on the floor. Rauschenberg had all sorts of interesting stuff on his floor, but I've got
1: some stuff too. I understand that the book started on some level because you finally decided to tackle the issue of racism mm. in Australia. Is there a specific key to what made you decide at this particular time? Well, I think it's age.
0: I mean, I've always addressed it. Oscar and Lucinda, which people remember as a story of a clergyman in the glass church going up a river, really began for me as a story about white Christian stories overpowering and killing Indigenous stories that occupied the land beforehand. So the issue has always been with me and has always been important in my work, but I didn't think it was for me as a white writer to really explore it directly. And I was wrong, really, really wrong. I'm now 74, and a time came somewhere about my 70th birthday where I looked at what I'd done and thought... You, you are known, Peter Carey, you are known as somebody who writes about Australian history and you invent Australia in certain ways. And how come you've never really addressed what is the, the most clearest, most obvious thing about Australia, which is this great, vast land occupied for 50,000 years by people who had the most stable culture on earth? And the British came murdered, massacred a lot of people, dispossessed them of their land, destroyed their customs in many ways. And you, me, you're the beneficiary of this and you haven't written about it directly.
1: But you were also told by an Aboriginal about 25 years ago that as a white writer you shouldn't write about it. Yeah,
0: and his name was Gary Foley and he's a great man. And he had had and has some hard work to do. He addressed a gathering of white playwrights, mostly white playwrights in Canberra in the middle 80s and said... I know you'll want to help so the way you could help is best you know you want to do something the indigenous people the best thing is just don't write about us because we already have enough misinformation and enough white fantasies in our heads that you've created that we've got to deal with now don't do it anymore i had no resistance at all to what he was saying i could see his point completely but a point came for me where i thought i really had to do this. The more I thought about it and what I had to do was different to what he was talking about. This story couldn't have happened without white people. If white people hadn't turned up there, none of this would have happened. So this really more than anything is a story about white Australia and white Australians recognising and grasping their history and their identity and also looking at the view that in the end we're all there together. We're all neighbors and fellow citizens and we have guilt's one thing, okay, but responsibility's something else. So my Australian friends looked very nervous when I said what I was gonna do. And in the end, you know, I went to Australia with this book and it was expecting some trouble and found it very, very well received. And I think part of that was I actually had done my work. Indigenous people had read the manuscript. Indigenous people had written some of my dialogue for me. And I think it works.
1: Peter Carey, you wanted to write this. What brought you to doing it in the context of the Redex trial?
0: See, this is
1: the other element,
0: and it's a really important one, that you know, if you're going to write a novel, you've got to find a door that you can walk through into the story. I can decide that I'm going to do it, but if I don't have that door, then I can't write the book. So I was at home in New York remembering the Red X trial, which as a child came through our little town. And it was magical and wonderful to see these battered cars covered in mud with bull bars and decals all over them. And and it's two in the morning and I'm awake and in the street, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, so I found online on YouTube, you can see the newsreel footage of the Red X trial. I was looking at it, and it was amazing. There's things you think are lost in time or lost in memory, and there they were. So I'm looking at this footage, showing these cars going through the top end of Australia where it's really hot, and the roads, it's awful. They're not roads, they're tracks. There's dust everywhere. I'm thinking, you know, if you guys were driving up the aisle of a cathedral, you really wouldn't know. And in fact, of course, they often were, because the country that they're obsessed with mapping or, or defining has been crisscrossed with storylines from 50,000 years. Foundation myths and a rich tapestry of religious stories, which are also beautifully blended with sort of quite practical things. So, you know, some of these stories are also teaching kids where the waterholes are. So you're not going to die, but it's also part of an ancient story. So it was really weird to me watching this newsreel footage and all the cutaway shots to things like goats there are not many goats in Australia anyway and I didn't see any indigenous people at all particularly when you're getting into Queensland and the Northern Territory in Western Australia which you know, a lot of indigenous people and it's their land we know that they can survive there better than we can and I often begin this way character is the most important thing at the end maybe but at the beginning it's sort of like an idea like the Oscar and Lucinda idea this is a book that's going to be about two sets of maps blackfellow maps Whitefella maps. That's not pejorative terminology in Australia. The races refer to each other in that way. And that was a really exciting idea to me, a bit scary because I knew I was going to have to know things that I didn't know yet and imagine things I didn't imagine that I could imagine.
1: The REDEX trial, this is not a race per se. It's a reliability trial, which is kind of in a long way home. It's not 100% clear to me exactly what is going on, particularly since, without giving anything away, the winners do cheat.
0: Oh, yes, the winners do cheat. I'm not sure if in real life how much cheating actually did go on. The thing about the Red X trial is that it's meant to test the reliability of the motor vehicle. And the whole point of it was definitely was not to be a race. Definitely, 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 they assured the police. And the, this is not to be, you know, 280 mad people with their foot flat on the accelerator. So there were all sorts of rules, you know, like if you got early to a checkpoint, you could be penalized. You had to get there on time. You could be penalized for changing, if something breaks in your car and you, want, you replace it, that's a penalty. And it was a tough, tough race, and you know things were going wrong all the time. The roads were terrible. Well, you couldn't call many of them roads with their sort of tracks. I got hold of a set of the strip maps that the drivers had. And, you
1: know, it really is creek ahead, this, this. It's tough going. Did you do any of the redex trial yourself? Did you get in a car and just drive from Melbourne and see where you could go?
0: Nope. You know, I'm a novelist, so there's things I can make up and feel confident about. The thing that I did that was most valuable to me was spend some time near Broome, which is in the northwest of Australia.
1: That's north of Perth. A long way north of Perth.
0: I changed the place name. There's a town there called Matawarra. Because what I was really thinking of was Fitzroy Crossing, but because I wanted a particular bridge that isn't in Fitzroy Crossing, I thought I should change the name of the town. But it's in a very specific place.
1: I looked on a map and tried to follow it, and then I got lost.
0: You're bound to. The character Willie, who's been a school teacher who ends up being the navigator, ends up teaching in some caves on this property, limestone caves. So those caves really do exist, and there really was a schoolroom on these caves on a cattle station near there. There, again, I changed the name of the cattle station.
1: People do terrible things that they didn't do in real life. They did, but not specifically. Not specifically, yes. Yeah.
0: I don't think there's a terrible thing that's in that book that I really actually invented. You're right. They didn't happen where I
1: might have so easily put them. There's a radio show called Deezy's Radio Quiz, which isn't exactly legitimate. Did a show like that actually exist? Do you remember that growing up? I remember lots of quiz shows, certainly. And I remember
0: quiz champions and even knew one of them. The thing is, I want my character to be uh, smart and to know the sort of things that quiz show people tend to know. But I didn't want him to be rich. That wouldn't work for the story. So I invented a beginning quiz show which professed to be giving out millions of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars to the winners where, in fact, there was no money in the bank at all and the checks were false. The guy running the quiz show is really trying to get a national advertiser by pretending he has an ongoing thing that does this. He has small advertisers. He doesn't have a budget to give away that sort of money, but he is trying to attract someone with the money.
1: And there was no television at the time.
0: Television, I think, arrived after that. I think 56, I think, television arrived in Australia.
1: When you were growing up, was Bacchus Marsh kind of a suburb? Was it rural? What was it?
0: It was very rural. It was a little town. I mean, now, airline pilots live in Bacchus Marsh and drive to the airport. But no, it was a town of about 5,000 people. How far from Melbourne? Only 33 miles. But then that was a long way.
1: In the ride around Australia, I got the sense that at least through part of it, it's mostly tropical rather than desert, the part that they were riding through. Is that correct?
0: It starts off in the north of Queensland, certainly tropical. At the time um, they discover evidence of the first massacre that they're aware of, an old massacre, that's tropical. As they go up the coast, they reach Townsville, which is a very... Very tropical place, uh, sugar refineries and all of, you know, sugarcane. And then they turn in to cross the continent very high up. And there you really are going into desert.
1: And that's from that town all the way down to Perth and then all the way around? Or?
0: It changes in subtle and different ways. But they're going across the whole top of Australia, a long, long way to Darwin, and they start to go down. You get different microclimates along the way. But yeah, you'd say it was mostly desert.
1: The book actually kind of skips the final part of the journey, which is from Perth to Adelaide. What is that terrain like?
0: It's sort of flat, bleak, windy, limestone. I cut the Nullarbor plain out of the story, concentrated on the Kimberley, which works, I think, in the book. But I was going to go out in the desert with these three old men. Two of them had been stolen from their parents as young boys, A sort of a... Whoopie doo anthropologist guy who was their friend. And we were going to sleep under the stars, and and the old guys were going to get nice bits of lizard to eat. But unfortunately, I got very sick in Fitzroy Crossing, and it was just impossible to go. So that's why the Nullable Plan doesn't play an important part in the book. When I made my plans for travel, I hadn't really quite sorted out the book. So the book works around what life makes possible.
1: This character of Willie is part of the Stolen Generation. You said in an interview that people in the cities often just didn't see any indigenous people, that they never came to town. There's also a sense that black people were not allowed into Australia at the time.
0: All right. So we're dealing with complicated threads of racism here. So on the one hand, you have the treatment of the indigenous people, where they're living and where they're recognized and so on. And so I certainly grew up in a small town and I never saw an indigenous person that I was aware of. I would say there were none in our small town. Maybe they were hiding in plain sight. It's possible. In the cities, Indigenous people certainly existed in the cities, in Sydney, you know, in in, in some clumps and concentrations. But that was not part of my experience. They were dealing with all sorts of forms of racism that the Indigenous people in the Northern Territory away from the cities had to carry these identity cards, which were called pejoratively dog tags. And that was a card that you could go into a pub and have a drink. If you didn't have one of these, you couldn't. And in some areas, it meant you could could go into town. And if you didn't have one of these, you couldn't. It's really interesting that we young Australians in the 50s and 60s really loathed South Africans for being racists. And we must have really been so upset because maybe we knew more than we thought we knew. Now, there's that. And then you also have Australia's racist immigration policies, which was known very clearly as the white Australia policy. That dates into the 19th century. Shamefully, the push for that came from the Union, so more from the left than from the right, where people from Fiji and the Solomon Islands, men particularly of colour, who were, who came in to cut the sugar cane. And the Australian unions didn't want them there because they were in competition. So that's the beginning of a white Australia policy that continued all the way really almost to 1975, when things changed considerably.
1: It's weird. It's like this alternate universe of what we know, which is the Mexicans being blocked from coming to this country, the cards not being allowed in bars. Sounds like the Deep South.
0: Yes, it does, absolutely. And you see, as an American, you know that. You grasp that history. We, I don't think, really quite grasp the immensity of this history. Did I know about dog tags? No, I didn't. When I saw a photograph of Aboriginal prisoners chained together with chains around their necks, it looked to me like something I might have seen from the United States. Because there again, you know, you people are bad. The South Africans are bad. But we're not. And then in the process of writing this book, even though I thought I was very well attuned to you know Australian race history, it was much worse than I knew. And even though I could look at a map and see there were sites of massacres, the incidence of massacres in Australian history, far greater than any of us knew. And they continued to be counted and continued to be discovered. And when I did my events in Australia, it happened once in every one of these events that a woman of about my age stood up and said, I grew up on a farm and I like to ride my horse. This is one of them. And I never liked to go to such and such a place because my grandmother said that's what, they rounded up the Aboriginal people and shot them. And I found in conversation with people was much more greater incidents than I knew. I talked to a friend of mine who lived not far from Sydney on a farm and sort of talked about bone fragments in the soil and that nobody would talk about. So it's worse than I knew. And of course, injustice and trauma continues. I said to somebody today that I'd seen a photograph, an x-ray photograph in the New York Times, which showed the sort of injuries that assault weapons cause to the human body, bones fractured beyond belief, but also a description in the story of how flesh is torn and organs are torn and all that sort of thing. And it seemed to me that was a sort of an image of the sort of thing that colonialism has done to native peoples in Australia, that there has been immense damage done by the brutal facts of colonialism and occupation. These are sort of our responsibility.
1: You said it changed around 75. People more aware now than they were? Absolutely.
0: This important legislation has been passed that gives indigenous people right to land. Anthropologists are busy all the time in courts with uh, indigenous people establishing their right to land through continual occupancy. And the right to land is often demonstrated by story, by paintings, by demonstrating this continual cultural relationship with land. So things have changed. If you arrived in Australia in, in tomorrow and you turned on the television, you, you would feel you know, a great consciousness of this. But that coexists with you know, residual racism, inequality and damage. Can I say something? When I listen to myself talking, I think the thing is also this is quite a funny book. So how can it be that you have all this awful stuff, and it's also quite funny? So I'm I'm aware that sort of the way I talk about
1: it isn't really representing what I did. The racism element comes up slowly, kind of bubbles to the surface. The reason it bubbles to the surface is the character of Willie specifically, who doesn't even know his own history, and apparently his features are slightly aboriginal, but he's a blonde.
0: I remember being in Japan with a uh, Japanese friend who was a photographer. And we went near Kyoto to see this monk. And he'd been a sort of, what do you call a protege of the monks. He had a photo show at night. And he was showing these photographs of Aboriginal kids. These Aboriginal kids with violently curly blonde hair. So there are lots of Aboriginal kids who not only have blonde hair, but people who you wouldn't necessarily identify as Aboriginal at all
1: the stolen generation, Mm. what was that?
0: From the very
1: beginning of
0: Australian occupation, or from British occupation, the sort of general thing was that the Aboriginal people were sort of primitive and could be sort of bred out. if they didn't die out themselves, because they were sort of hopeful that they would just die out and go away. There were many white rural workers and people passing through, and there was lots of mixed race children began to arrive. When a pale-skinned child was born, the government's social workers would come in and take the child away. Sometimes the children were old enough to know what was happening to them, and sometimes they weren't. They would be taken and given to white families to be raised as white people. It's a very long story, and it continues certainly through the 1950s, where you had people who grew up thinking that they were white, and discovering in the end that they were not and being so disconnected from their biological parents and children who remembered the trauma of being taken and parents who tried to visit them at institutions and then they lost touch with them. These were recognised formally by the Australian government as a stolen generation and an apology was finally made. I have somebody in this book who, who returns who doesn't remember having been taken doesn't even know that he's black, and returns to a community and he's recognised. They have an extraordinary ability to recognise the missing person.
1: What is a punkah wallah?
0: In colonial India, you know the person who brings the tea is the tea wallah. That's a word that comes from colonial history. Right? So, rather staggered in my research, from very reliable. A source to find the term that was used in India for the person that used to work those big, slow fans. I'm talking about India now, whose job it was to pull a cord all day long so that the breeze moves over the white person's face. So I was staggered to find that term used in Australia. And as I said, an incredibly reliable source, you know, impeccable. So to transition the movement from India to Australia, that form of colonialism being transferred to Australia was shocking to me, bizarre and yet illustrative of a sort of a particular mindset. And so I have someone in the book whose job it is to be the Pankawala.
1: It's peculiar in the context of being in this indigenous region with these indigenous people. Willie's real father, for instance, is just like a southern gentleman who has slaves. The comparisons kind of are the same, and yet there's a difference. I
0: think the Southern gentleman would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of a hypocritical figure in the sense that he would be parading as a gentleman in some sort of way. The Australian equivalent is a thug and a barbarian. But still, the same sort of position. You're quite correct.
1: Australia was originally populated by criminals, right? So you're starting off with people going there who'd already committed crimes, many of which.
0: Well, we wouldn't see it like that the european part of the country is founded as a penal colony can't send people to america anymore we're going to open up australia and we'll do it there we would say that they'd been convicted we would tend not to think we would tend not to think of them as criminals we would tend to think of them as 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 victims of inequality poverty and so on and we would think of them as people who've been ripped from their mother country sent to the moon so to speak, an alien country where they couldn't even grow the food that they knew. And these people, the victims of that trauma, then become murderers in another context. Not the only ones, because there were plenty of officers and so on to help them with that job.
1: Peter Carey, literary question. What prompted the decision to write most of the book as switching point of view characters between the woman who lived in Bacchus March and goes on this uh, redex trial, and Willie?
0: Firstly, I've always liked switching points of view. I think you get closer to the truth when there's some sort of different perceptions at work. And certainly in earlier novels, we might have had three or four or five different points of view at work. So as a way to move a story along and to see some sort of complexity, well, I like that. Early in the piece, there's Irene's husband, Titch. I might have chosen him as a voice to tell the story. For some reason, more intuitive than anything else, I chose not to. I think so whether we have the married woman and the man next door who's the navigator does set up the possibility there will be some sort of uh, romantic entanglement. And when I made that decision, I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. And I like that. I mean, I like the sense that you set these these sort of vectors of force, if you like.
1: So you had the basic plan, which was get to the redex, do the redex, what happens afterward. That was always there, but how the characters interrelated only came about through the writing itself.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. There were some big issues in the book, which is how I was going to deal with the, the, na- the nature of sort of indigenous religions. And there was something that Was not clear to me and I knew it couldn't be avoided. The wonderful discovery was in fact to discover that, although this was not widely known, that indigenous people had co-opted white narratives and white stories and turned them against white people. And so that was immensely useful for me in the book because it was something I could feel in command of. I certainly wasn't trying to pretend to be an authority on traditional Aboriginal religion and I had something new to say about this.
1: There's a story of Captain Cook, which in the <laughs> afterword you say, came directly from the people who you were talking to.
0: I never met that particular man, but I knew a woman who was an anthropologist who lived there for many, many years and was a very good friend of this man's, whose permission I sought to use the story. It's an Aboriginal imagining the story of Captain Cook, and his Captain Cook is not the rather lordly sort of fellow with the wig. When I see this story, I see, like, this sort of cartoon figures, this tiny Captain Cook all over Australia. And in this story of Captain Cook, Captain Cook comes in and he says, oh, I like that, take that, that's for me. And then he shoots these people. So he's this sort of venomous, murderous, active Captain Cook who comes out from big London with law books and enacts all these crimes over the country. I think it's funny, but it's really bitter. It's accurate too. And when people in Australia argue like they argue here about the statues of southern heroes. They argue about Captain Cook in Australia. Should we take these statues down? Because after all, Captain Cook didn't discover Australia at all. It was there for a long, long time. So these arguments go on. In my view, I think it would be really wonderful to have Hobbles Daniari's Captain Cook story engraved you know, in bronze with Captain Cook looking at it. And I think so that you have these two different sort of views of colonization and the discovery of Australia. And I think uh, we would benefit from that.
1: Peter Carey, now that you've written the book and done some of the tour, what have you learned? Has something in you changed in your view of Australia?
0: The thing I've learned about it, I think, is that this was something I was led to believe and I thought myself was a sort of a dangerous thing to do. The dangerous to imagine the lives of your fellow citizens and your neighbors, and to deal with that. And I came away, certainly from Australia, thinking, what was all the fuss about? It wasn't such a big deal. We can talk about this. We can actually have humor in this. And if we can talk about it like this, then we can be more relaxed in terms of actually discussing race and the crimes of the past. And so when I mention the women who stand up, in the public place and with recollections of massacres on properties, that's, I think, rather unusual. Now, I'm not somebody who thinks novels change the world or anything like that. But the thing I thought was, I was too worried. I shouldn't have been so worried. We can talk about race if we just relax.
1: A couple other questions about your career, Peter Carey. I went to IMDb and I saw that the true history of the Kelly gang may become a movie with Russell Crowe. Is that true? Yeah.
0: It's not a big budget film. The part that Russell Crowe would play would be Harry Power, who was sort of like the outlaw who Ned Kelly was apprenticed to. And it's perfect casting for this. You know, the story of Ned Kelly is a story of kids. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And so there'll be young actors who... You've never seen playing young Ned and Ned a little bit older, which is an exciting. Anyway, they're meant to be shooting um, July, August in Australia, so touch wood.
1: I did not interview you about amnesia, which deals with cyber terrorism and cybersecurity. Here we are three years later, and the book seems to be even more relevant today. As you working on that book. Did you have any idea that what you were writing would just expand? No. I thought
0: that when I was writing you – know, at the heart of that book is the United States government interfering in the internal affairs of Australia and overthrowing the government and interfering in elections. And I really thought Americans would be very interested in that. As it turned out, they weren't really interested at all. But I'm daily reminded of it when I feel the sort of the incredible outrage that a foreign power interfered in American elections. So there's a curious mirroring of the story that's going on at this very moment where we know that the Russians interfered in the elections of this country, which is an outrage. I just do wish more people knew that the United States had interfered in the internal affairs of Australia in a not dissimilar and perhaps even more brutal way. Amnesia is the book. (laughs) Don't forget it.
1: (laughs) I was chatting with a friend from Australia not too long ago, seemed to have a very peculiar vision of Donald Trump. Like he didn't quite understand what we're dealing with here, almost as if he'd got the wrong information. Mm. Is that pretty common, you think?
0: I really don't know at all. I've not really lived there all the time for 25 years. But I will say of all our friends in New York, I think sometimes immigrants do get things right. And my wife, who's English, and I were very, very concerned that Donald Trump was likely to win the election. And all our very well-informed, politically savvy journalists and historians and friends all said, don't worry, Donald Trump will never, it will never happen. The terrified immigrants thought it was really very likely. But my friends in Australia, my friends I think had have a pretty fair idea of who he is, but I don't know who you go drinking with.
1: Peter Kerry... In rural parts of Australia, is it kind of similar to the rural parts of the US in terms of the right-wing politics?
0: Huh? Well, I know a little bit in the sense that rural parts of Australia with small populations have tended to be conservative and to have exerted disproportionate power in a federalist system. And it's also true that in Australia, there has been a sort of resurgence or a upswelling of, you know, a sort of bigoted right wing. I think not quite like here. Comparisons are very, very difficult, I think.
1: Australia, in some respects, parallels the US and in others, as you point out. It's different because of the colonial nature.
0: Absolutely. We never fought a war of independence, for Mm. instance, which is a really, really important aspect of Australia. You know, in, in Australia right now, we have a constitutional monarchy. It's why the Queen of England can't dismiss the elected government of Australia. So it's not like the United States. It's not like the United States about guns. We don't have that particular sickness, if you let me call it that, that you guys have. It's different in many ways. We have an ugly form of racism, which we've been talking about. Our involvement with religion is completely different to yours. I mean, we can have an Australian prime minister who doesn't believe in God, which to me is a really healthy and good thing, and I applaud. When I lived in Sydney, I never knew anyone who went to church. When I came to the United States, I now know people who go to church. And I guess you couldn't be president if you said you didn't believe in God.
1: Peter Carey, now A Long Way From Home is out. Are you working on your next novel? Of course, what else am I going (laughs) to (laughs) do? Can you give us a little uh, hint?
0: No, I can't. I learned that a long time ago. When you start telling stories to people, it sort of tends to
1: kill the story a little bit. Is it uh, uh, historical, modern day? Well, it depends
0: on your age, I suppose. It's more 60s, 70s. It's set in Australia. So for all this thing of living in the, in the United States and living in New York all these years, it does appear, if I look at my bookshelf, that I have, in fact, been living in Australia.
1: <laughs> <laughs> On some level, you never leave. How often do you go back? Oh,
0: every couple of years. I mean, my, I have a sister and a brother who live in the town that we were all born in. In, in, Bacchus, in, in, Marsh. in Bacchus Marsh. And although they don't speak to each other, they both speak to me. And so I, I, I like to, I like to visit them and see them
1: and you can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.